Good morning. You can turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to follow along, to Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Um, we're going to read just a few passages, beginning in chapter 1, but we're going to focus primarily on Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. But I'd like to sort of set the context by beginning with uh, Genesis 1, 31, then looking at chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, and 16 and 17, and then we'll read Genesis chapter 3. This is God's Word, Genesis 1, 31. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Folks, there's my opinion, there's your opinion, and there, then there's what we just read, which is the very Word of God. We should ask for His blessing that He would teach us. Pray with me. Father, as I often pray before I preach, I am so grateful that You have not left us alone to try to make sense out of life on our own, but that You've spoken to us in Your Word. Lord, I ask that You would teach us today, that You would allow us to taste and see that You really are good, that You would allow us to behold You in Your beauty. Father, I don't have the ability to, to do that in my own heart, much less lead other people into doing that, but, but you by your Spirit can. And so we look to you in faith and in dependence. 
Teach us now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's, it's great to be with you again. I was here, I don't know, four or five weeks ago. Um, people ask oftentimes, what do RUF campus ministers do during the summer? One of the things we do is we work on stuff for the fall. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to be looking at this passage. And the reason that we're looking at this passage is because in about a month, we're going to start looking at the early chapters of Genesis on campus at Tennessee Tech. Uh, I think I told you last time that the reason that we're doing this is because Genesis 1-3 to asks and answers and addresses a number of questions that I know my students have. But here's the thing. The questions that, that Genesis addresses aren't just student-specific. The fact of the matter is they are people-specific, which means they address questions that not only my students have, but questions that we have, questions that you have. Now, what do I mean? Well, take, for instance, the passage that we're considering this morning. What is the question that this passage addresses? Well, the reason that we started off by reading Genesis 1.31 in those verses in chapter 2 is that what the Bible tells us is that when God created the world, He created it not only good, but He created it very good. And yet when you pick up a newspaper or a news magazine or you go onto the internet and you surf for news or you flip on the television and you watch news, what you discover is that the world that you and I inhabit is anything but good. And the question that you have to ask in light of what the Bible tells us is what in the world is going on? Because the world doesn't seem to be the way that it was, it was created to be. Why is the world so full of brokenness, so full of pain, so full of suffering? And, and more importantly, perhaps, why am I so broken? Why am I so full of pain? Why am I so full of suffering? I mean, here's the thing. None of us have experienced life in a Genesis 1 and 2 world. The world that we live in is, is profoundly broken. I mean, I was watching the news last night, and it was reported that in just a matter of 10 days, well over a thousand people have been killed in Gaza because of the conflict between Hamas and Israel. Just a week ago, I'm watching the news only to discover that somebody shot down a passenger airline, a passenger uh, airline, yeah, over the Ukraine. And what, 200, 300 people perished. We live in a very broken world. But more than that, we are very broken. I mean, just think about our lives, right? Think about our marriages that are that are barely hanging on by a shoestring. Think about demanding children or, or overbearing parents or unthankful bosses. Think about sickness. Think about death. Why? Why can't I love my wife like Christ loved the church? Why, why can't you obey and honor your parents? Why can't you parent your children 
without provoking them to anger? Why can't you look at another man or another woman without turning that person into an object of lust? Why can't you control your anger? Why can't you control your selfishness? Folks, those are very, very serious questions. And the good news is that this morning, in the passage that we are considering, God answers many of those questions for us. But He doesn't answer all of our questions. Now, what do I mean? Well, think for a minute about this passage. And think specifically about the mystery of sin and evil. In Genesis chapter 3, God creates the Garden of Eden. And as we just read, we, everything is, is very good. God plants a garden. He puts Adam and Eve in that garden to care for it and to cultivate it. More than that, God gives them everything they could possibly need. At the end of chapter 2, we didn't actually read this verse, but at the end of chapter 2, we read that Adam and Eve were naked and they were unashamed, which certainly means that they were not wearing clothes, but it means so much more. It means that they were known to the core of their being. That they were completely transparent. And they were okay with it. They were known to the core of their being, and they were loved. And as a consequence, they had a, a, a faithful in a fulfilling relationship, not only with each other, but with God. And then something happens. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, which, if you know the story, raises all kinds of questions. I mean, this is paradise. This is Eden. This is perfection. So where did this serpent come from, right? That's a reasonable question. Who is this serpent? Did God create the serpent? And the Bible answers some of those questions for us. According to Genesis chapter 1, there is God and there is everything else, which means what? It means that, yes, God did create this serpent. In Revelation 20, we read that the serpent was Satan. In, in the book of Jude and in 2 Peter, we learned that Satan and his minions, at, at some point before this, the creation, Satan and his, his minions sinned against God and fell. But, but here's the thing. As far as the actual origin of evil, the Bible tells us nothing and as a consequence, we are left scratching our heads and wondering, how does this make sense? Christopher Wright, in his book, The God I Don't Understand, says this. What well, He actually makes a case, and I'm going to quote him. He makes a case that you and I will never be able to make sense of sin and evil because sin and evil aren't supposed to make sense. This is what he says. God, with his... In, God, with His infinite perspective and for reasons known only to Himself, knows that we finite human beings cannot, indeed must not, make sense of evil. For the final truth is that evil does not make sense. Sense is part of our rationality, 
that in itself is part of God's good creation and God's image in us. So evil can have no sense since sense itself is a good thing. And a little further on, he says this, Evil is beyond our understanding because it is not part of the ultimate reality that God in His perfect wisdom and utter truthfulness intends us to understand. Now, what does that mean? It means this. You will never, ever be able to make sense of, to understand, to explain sin and evil. And the question that you have to ask yourself is, can I live with that? Here's the thing. Being able to live in a broken world that doesn't make sense takes at least two things. Number one, it takes humility on our part. It takes the ability to admit our own finitude. There is one God, and I am not Him. And it also takes faith. Faith in God. A God who understands why things are the way they are, even though I don't. Even though we don't. I love how Tim Keller puts it in his book, Reason for God. He says that we need to remember that if God is big enough and powerful enough for us to get angry with Him because of all of the evil and all of the suffering and all of the pain in this world and in our lives, God also has to be big enough and powerful enough to have reasons for suffering, evil, and pain that we can't understand with our limited minds. You see, at the end of the day, God didn't give us Genesis chapter 3 to explain to us the origin of sin and evil. Beyond what G.K. Chesterton concluded when he was asked the question, what's wrong with the world? Maybe you know the story. G.K. Chesterton was asked, what's wrong with the world? And he concluded, or he answered, I am. Here's the thing. God gave us Genesis chapter 3, not to explain to us the origin of sin and evil, but to give us hope that there is grace and that there is mercy for people who, like Chesterton, are willing to confess, I am what's wrong with the world. There's a sense in which God is, 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 is being a doctor to us. And like any good doctor, before giving us the remedy... He diagnoses our problem. And that's exactly what you see in this passage. You see the anatomy of sin and evil. Think about it like this. Why, why do we sin? Why do you sin? In verse 1, we read, The serpent comes to Eve and asks, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Which, of course, is not what God said. In Genesis, Genesis 2, God said, you can eat of any tree of the garden that you'd like except this one tree. Now, what's the serpent doing? The serpent is implying something about God. Maybe God is too good to be true. Maybe God is asking too much of you. Maybe God is overbearing. Maybe God is unnecessarily restrictive. 
Maybe God is being unreasonable. But the serpent doesn't stop there. Eve responds, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Which, again, is not exactly what God said, but it gives us a hint as to what's about to happen. The serpent drops the gloves and goes for the jugular. In verses 4 and 5, we read, the serpent says, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the serpent saying? The serpent is saying, God is a liar. God can't be trusted. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. God is only looking out for Himself. He doesn't want you to be happy. He doesn't want you to be fulfilled. Folks, this is, this is very important to see. The serpent doesn't say this. He doesn't say, hey, you know that guy who comes to the garden in the cool of the evening and walks around with you? I know he says that he's God, but he's not really God. That's not what the serpent does. The serpent does not deny that God is God. What does the serpent do? The serpent attacks the character of God. And more specifically, the serpent attacks the goodness of God. And this is so very important for us to understand. Because the main reason you and I struggle, or perhaps the main reason why you and I don't struggle with our sin, is because we don't really believe that God is good. You don't. We don't believe that God has our best interest at heart. In our heart of hearts, we oftentimes wonder, is God holding out on me? And you think, Jeff, you are crazy. Go back to Tennessee Tech. No, think about it. Um, think, about, think about it like this. What are you saying when you sin? And particularly, what are you saying when you consciously sin? When you sort of know this is wrong, but I'm going to... What are you saying? You're saying this. You're saying, God, I know you claim to be good. I know you claim to have my best interest at heart. I know that you say that your law is good and beautiful and lovely, but I'm not quite sure I can trust you. And so we do what we think is right. We do what we think will make us happy, regardless of what God has said. Here's the thing. There is something inside of us even believers, even inside of believers, there is something inside of us that is averse to God, that is opposed to God, that is hostile to God. If you don't believe me, just think about your devotional life. Why is it so hard to spend time with God? Why is reading the Bible so dry and boring? Why does prayer feel so empty? At the end of the day, it all comes down to this. We don't really believe that God is good. There's something else I want you to see here about the anatomy of sin, and that is this. The problem in Genesis 3 wasn't 
that Adam and Eve were tempted. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, was tempted. Over and over and over, he, he, he lived his life, but he lived his life without sin. And what that means is that temptation is not the same thing as sin. Sin is what begins to happen in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be, or that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Oh, I want you to see this. What is sin? What is at the heart of sin? What this passage tells us is that at the heart of the sin of sin is the desire to be autonomous. The desire to be on our own. The desire to make our own rules. Autonomy is choosing yourself as the source for determining what is right and wrong. What is good and bad. What will make you happy and bring fulfillment rather than trusting God and His Word for direction. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. You see, up to this moment in time, Adam and Eve have lived their lives in sweet, simple submission to God and His Word. They understood that, that there was one God and they were not Him. They understood that they were created to be completely dependent upon God and His Word. And as a consequence, if God said it, they believed it, and they did it. But what happens in verse 6? I mean, picture it like this. Up to that moment in time, Adam and Eve have, had lived their lives under God and His Word. But in that moment, Eve, with Adam standing at her side, elevated herself above the Word of God, and she began to weigh God's word over and against the word of the serpent. And in that moment, God's word went from being her authority to being nothing more than advice. And she elevated herself to the position of ultimate authority in her life. One, cat, one pastor put it like this. He said, sin begins when we assume that we have the right and the wisdom to decide if we should obey. He continues, as soon as you begin asking, is this obedience to God really beneficial to me or not? Should I obey this or not? Then you have already disobeyed. How so? You are assuming God's place. You are putting yourself in a position to judge the wisdom of God's will. Beloved, this is the heart of sin. Sin isn't simply breaking some abstract, arbitrary rule. It's not like getting a parking violation. Sin is deeply, deeply personal. It's, it's a declaration of spiritual independence from our Creator. It's cosmic rebellion. It's like saying to God, I want a divorce. Here's the cold, hard fact. We don't really want God to be God. We want God to be our advisor. 
We want God to be our counselor. We want God to be our friend. We want God to be our comforter. But we don't want God to be our king. We don't want God to tell us what to do and what not to do. You see, we want to make the rules. We want to decide what's right and wrong for ourselves. We want to do what we want to do. We think we know better. Like Adam and Eve, we want to be God. As Rankin Wilburn, the pastor of Pacific Crossroads, put it, the sin of every the seed of every sin is the desire to control our own lives. Of course, the question for us this morning is will you accept God's diagnosis of your problem? Or will you look for a second opinion? There are lots of opinions out there. But this is God's Word. Well, what are some symptoms, in, uh, some symptoms of sin and evil in our lives? Well, let's think about what happens to Adam and Eve when they try to take things into their own hands. What happens when Adam and Eve begin to disregard God and His Word? The consequences are both tragic and cosmic. What happens when Adam and Eve disobey God in His Word? In a word, shame. Shame is what happens. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What is shame? One commentator says this. He says, shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. Not being able to be comfortable with yourself as you are and therefore not being comfortable in the presence of another. That is shame. Brene Brown, who, who has made a study of shame, her life's goal, her, her career goal in her book, I Thought It Was Just Me, describes shame like this. Shame is like prison, but a prison that you deserve to be in because there's something wrong with you. Maybe think about it like this. Guilt is something you experience because of something you've done. But shame is something you feel because of who you are. And what that means is that shame goes to the very core of our being. So shame is symptom number one. But there's another symptom in this passage. What do you feel? What do you do when you feel shame? What do you do? Our natural reaction to shame is to, to try to escape it through covering ourselves in hiding, which is exactly what you see in this passage. It's exactly what Adam and Eve are doing with the fig leaves. Think for a minute about relationships. Think about your relationships. We see this cycle of shame, of covering and hiding in our relationships. What do I mean? I see this a lot with college students, but I know it's true of myself as well. Most of us in this room, in fact, I would suggest all of us in this room, subconsciously think, we subconsciously believe that we will only be loved and we will only be accepted by other people if we hide, if we cover up who we are in ourselves. 
We think, I might find love. I might find acceptance if I can hide my flaws. I might find love. I might find acceptance if I can hide my selfishness. I might find love. I might find acceptance if I can hide my weaknesses or my anxieties or my idiosyncrasies. But here's the thing. That strategy never works. The leaves always fall off and the consequence is always shame upon shame upon shame. You see, ever since that day in the garden, we have been living in a cycle of shame. And it's crippling. It's paralyzing. It's terrifying. So, what are we to do? Is there any hope for people like you and me who struggle with sin and shame? What is the remedy for people who struggle with sin and with evil and with shame. Well, here's the thing. If what you mean by remedy is, what do I need to do? This passage is of absolutely no help. What must I do? The passage doesn't tell us. In fact, if you kept reading this passage and you read the words of Adam, just a few words later, we, we run across the very last words of Adam, not only in the book of Genesis, but in the entire Bible. And those words, what are they? They are characterized by blame shifting and accusation and excuse. Adam, when asked what's going on, actually blames Eve, and then he blames God, and that's the last thing we hear of Adam. So, what does that mean? That means if what you're looking for in this passage is what you should do, it's got nothing. But, that's not to say that this passage doesn't give us a remedy. It's just, it's just a remedy that isn't rooted in who you are or what you do. It's not rooted in your goodness or your effort to make things right. The remedy is rooted and founded in God, in His goodness, in His grace. Now, where do I see that? Well, look at verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then in verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? Where are you? Folks, those are glorious words. Those are gracious words. Those are kind words. Those are amazingly compassionate words. Now, why do I say that? Well, think about it like this. Why, why would God ask, Where are you? I mean, he's God, right? He's, he's om, omniscient. He knows everything. He knows where Adam and Eve are. So why does God ask, Adam, Eve, where are you? It's because with those words, God is calling Adam. Mm. Whew, whew. Makes me want to cry. He is calling Adam and Eve back to himself. He's coming after Adam and Eve. He is pursuing them, even in the midst of their rebellion and alienation. But he is not coming after them to destroy them. He is not coming after them to blow them up. He is not coming after them to execute them. He is coming after them in grace, which is the story of the Bible. I love how um, Michael Goheen 
and Craig Bartholomew put it in their book called The Drama of Scripture. They say this, after God created the world and human rebellion marred it, God set out to restore what he had made. God did not turn his back on a world bent on destruction. He turned his face toward it in love. Folks, that's what the Bible is about. And that's exactly what you see in this passage. But the thing that you also need to realize is this. Restoration, it's not free. It's not free. You see, when God took that first step in the garden, God, when God took that first step in the garden that day, He knew it was just a first step. And He knew it was a step that would lead to another garden into a cross. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, whom the Apostle Paul called the second Adam, Jesus experienced temptation not unlike the temptation of Adam and Eve. Well, it was unlike it in certain ways. Because Adam and Eve, when they were tempted, they had everything. It was paradise. But when Jesus is standing in the Garden of Eden, he is actually getting a taste of hell. Listen how Jonathan Edward puts it. In the garden, God gave Jesus an extraordinary view of what lay ahead. In the garden, Jesus had a near view of the furnace of God's wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. In the Garden of Eden, God called out to the hiding Adam and Eve, where are you? But on the cross, Jesus cries out to his God and his Father, why have you forsaken me? In the Garden of Eden, God promises Adam, obey me and you will live. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, God promises Jesus, obey me and you will die. And the good news of the Gospel is that where Adam failed, Jesus was faithful. In his life, and particularly in his death, Jesus became sin so that you and I who look to him in faith might be made the righteousness of God. Why? Paul answers that question for us in Romans 5. He says this, he said, God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Why did Christ die for us? In a word, love. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Do you know what that means? It means this. It means that instead of running from God, 
in trying to cover ourselves up, to try to hide our shame. We can, in confidence, run to God, singing with all of our heart, believing with every fiber of our being, what we sang just moments ago. Out of my shameful failures and loss, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come into the glorious gain of thy cross. Jesus, I come to thee. Would that God would give us the grace to trust him. And when we fail, which we will, would we hear with ears anew those words of grace? Where are you? Let's pray.